Hello, welcome to the Positive Energy Podcast. I'm your host, Ian T.D. Thompson. The Positive Energy Podcast is the official podcast of the University of Ottawa's Positive Energy Initiative. The initiative seeks to strengthen public confidence in Canadian energy policy, regulation, and decision-making through evidence-based research and analysis, engagement, and recommendations for action. Today on the program, we have the pleasure of talking with Andrew Pickford. Andrew Pickford is a strategic analyst working between Australia and North America in the areas of strategy, economic analysis, and energy with a range of organizations, both private and public. Andrew, among many different wide-ranging positions, is a senior fellow at the International Strategic Studies Association, senior fellow at the China Institute at the University of Alberta, and adjunct research fellow at the University of Western Australia. He is also completing his PhD at the University of Western Australia and is a positive energy research affiliate. He will be talking to us on the Australian experience of energy issues, federalism and policy debates. He'll be discussing similarities and differences between Australia and Canada and how these qualities influence our respective debates, particularly as it relates to the outlook of liquefied natural gas. So without further ado, uh, take it away, Andrew. Well, thank you, Ian. That's, uh, that's a very great introduction and I'm very pleased to be uh, participating in this Positive Energy podcast and uh, working with Professor Gettinger. Um, I will give a few short remarks, some context first, and get into the governance differences and similarities, energy as an issue, climate, and really point out some lessons for Canada in both my uh, academic and public policy research. So as you can tell from my accent, I'm obviously Australian, but I've lived at various times in Nova Scotia, in Quebec, outside of Montreal, and spent a lot of time in Alberta. So I have um, quite familiar with the Canadian system in terms of its uh, politics, culture and history. And rather uniquely for people in this space, I've actually worked in LNG uh, firms and utilities. Uh, it was a, uh, a, a, a government-owned uh, transmission company. So I'm reasonably familiar with uh, both Australia, Canada and the sector. I would make the observation that this space, which uh, Monica, the University of Ottawa, has really helped bring together private sector players, academia and industry and Indigenous groups, and also match that with some rigorous academic work, which has helped to, I think, elevate the discussion and debate in Canada. And one thing I've noticed from doing a PhD on the topic of energy, there is very little scholarly work on the material. So I'm very pleased to contribute an Australian perspective and support the research effort. So the real question is, is what can Canada learn from the Australian experience? And I think it's best to give a bit of context of how we're similar and how we're different. So just in governance and, and structure, on paper we're quite similar. We're a federation, we have a British heritage, although Canada obviously has the, uh, the New France and Quebec component. Australia is a bit different to Canada, even though on the, the surface we look similar, is that we are really defined, our federation was defined by external threats. Firstly, with Germany that led to federation, Japan in World War II, and arguably China as it expands its influence across the Indo-Pacific. Uh, constitutionally, we are a bit cleaner than, I guess, Canada in terms of a long-running debate about constitutionalism, separation, and so forth. Uh, our states are quite weak compared to Canada, 
So we have a different relationship between premiers and prime ministers. Geographically, I've put them in three buckets. We have three categories which you can really mirror onto Canada. Queensland, Western Australia are resource states. They are a bit like Alberta, BC and Newfoundland. New South Wales and Victoria are your big population centres, boat rich, uh, traditional industrial centres, a bit like Ontario and Quebec. And we have uh, Tasmania, South Australia and Northern Territory. These are, for, for various reasons, less substantive in their economic growth and potential and very relatively small. And Tasmania is in many ways a bit like Newfoundland, Nova Scotia. It's older, it has more of a tourism focus and it has a different dynamic in that it is a recipient of funds. We have the debate in Australia about fiscal equalisation. We like to be equal like Canada and we have a that crosses through a lot of debates and energy interacts a lot with it as well. Another difference is, as we're so centralised, the states don't tax, have a sales income or corporate tax. Uh, so that means a lot of the money that flows to the states comes through Canberra in the form of grants. The other thing to note is we've been very export focused. We focus on commodities. A bit like Harold Innes, the Canadian historian of the Staples thesis, we have developed as a, as a, primarily as an exporter. And like Canada, there is a bit of a debate over the extent that we should be a quarry or go into high tech. The other differences is because we don't have a separate, we don't have a Quebec component, our politics is relatively stable. We have a centre-left and centre-right party, uh, which tend to alternate. We also, unlike Canada, we have some areas of fairly strong bipartisanship. So foreign relations, defence are largely very similar between the two main parties with different on the edges. And uh, that's one thing I picked up with Canada where you can have relatively significant swings depending on the party in power in Ottawa and all the coalitions that make it up. I don't think that's unique for Australia. It's just that we don't have the variables of bringing a coalition together of different regions and language groups and, and different legacies. So that's a sort of a snapshot and, and I hope to discuss things, how that in, impacts energy and, and climate policy, but a quick snapshot of energy. So we're quite different to Canada in, in a number of ways and this really impacts our policy decisions. Australia has no nuclear fleet other than a, than a research reactor that also produce medical isotopes. We have limited hydro being flat, dry is one of the reasons that we simply don't have the capacity to, to have the hydro option in my home state of Western Australia. We actually produce drinking water from the Indian Ocean through desalination. The other aspects to note is that we've traditionally relied on brown and black coal for our electricity. Now natural gas has really in the last 20 or 30 years increased its penetration largely through conventional generators that basically operate on natural gas. And we have had a very big influx of renewables. We have it on two fronts. We have had it primarily through large, large wind farms and rooftop solar. And we've got some of the highest penetrations in the world of rooftop solar, which is causing some challenges from a frequency and a grid and grid management perspective. Different to Canada, we actually, our grids on the east coast are interlinked. So if you look at the map of Australia, the grid runs essentially from the bottom of Tasmania up to the tip of Queensland and into South Australia. 
So through the reform process in the 80s and 90s, we had a, a degree of deregulation, privatisation and integration into a national grid. Now that didn't, we didn't sweep away to completely sort of end the legacy of state-based systems and, and oversight. A number of states in Australia still have government-owned what you would know as crown corporations involved in the generation and uh, transmission and also retailing sector. So we're a mix somewhere between Canada and Australia in terms of our, our sort of privatisation and deregulation. So the peak of that happened in the early 2000s and at that time environmental policies started to mandate particular um, percentages or chunks of renewables that accelerated the push into a larger fleet of renewables that were integrating into this national grid. The other feature on the energy front is two things and one thing for my research that I'm particularly interested in is LNG, liquefied natural gas. It is a, um, a long-running industry in Australia. Western Australia first exported natural LNG in 1989 to Japan. And this is essentially the subject of my PhD. My PhD looks at why Australia essentially developed a large sector and is now the largest exporter of LNG in the world. It came to me as an interesting phenomenon when in the early 2000s, we attracted about $200 billion of investment. So what I'm looking at from a uh, public policy and a, and a research perspective is why this happened and what it looks like and what it means. Now, this has had a number of impacts to the Australian energy sector, which is, uh, comes into uh, policy-making dilemmas. And essentially, once we started exporting LNG from the East Coast, the price of gas internationalised. Now, what that means is that the price of natural gas in Australia suddenly matched what it cost to land a load in Japan. That pulled up energy prices at the same time a lot of solar and wind were coming on, which required balancing. And for various other structural reasons, there was a lot of price pressure on the cost of electricity and that's through to customers and households. That caused a lot of political issues in terms of what you would call your checkbook or pocketbook issues and was a very much a sore point or a friction point for political debates, even though there was a mix of state and federal overlap in jurisdiction. The other aspect that, to note about Australia is we're a large coal exporter. We both um, export thermal and metallurgical coal, both are obviously different. Uh, one, one feeds into the steelmaking process, one is for generation. And that is a very large sector and has been a friction point for the debate over export of fossil fuels versus environmental policies and was most recently seen at the Adani coal mine in Queensland, which was going to be the biggest coal mine in the world or is going to be the biggest coal mine in the world and also traverses the Great Barrier Reef. So a quite an interesting juxtaposition of the challenges of reconciling export of fossil fuels and environment. And again, this for the Canadian listeners of this podcast, you will no doubt see familiar themes in your debates over the refining of, of heavy oil sands and export to international markets. So that brings me to climate. This could be a podcast in itself. Climate policy, as similar to Canada, has been unresolved. 
It has been a driver of dispute within and between federal political parties for at least the last 15 years. Since the election of the Rudd government in 2007, after the Howard government took a, effectively a emission trading scheme to the election, it has been bedeviled by intra and inter-party disputes. And it has been a source or reason which has caused the downfall of many of our prime ministers. The reasons are varied from ideological to negotiating politics of our Senate, which is an elected body in contrast to Canada, and some of the horse trading that happens to get bills through Parliament. What it also feeds into is because it's such a divisive issue, Australian political parties, unlike Canada, elects its leaders or traditionally has elected its leaders from caucus. So the parliamentary members of the political party select their leader. What that means is the backbench has to have confidence in the leadership and this issue has caused claim the scalps of a number of leaders, so much so that for a period of time, we had a, our winter was known as killing season for removing sitting prime ministers and leaders. The language is a bit more colourful and earthy than the genteel Canadian one, but politics in Australia is a blood sport and a lot of the blood over the last 15 years has been caused by climate policy disputes. So where are we on climate? Still unresolved. The slight shift in the 2019 election where the incoming centre-right conservative Morrison government tended to signal that they were going to move beyond a, uh, a binary debate for some reconciliation. He has taken a pragmatic centrist point of view of a mix of direct action. We have had a similar debates to the Stephen Dion Green shift, which caused, I know in Canadian politics, caused schisms and, and, and essentially arguably led to a particular election results there. It has been something that I think will continue on Although its impact going ahead, given the likely downturn because of COVID-19, may push back a bit and electricity prices may become the bigger driver of the uh, debate over the, in the views of the voters. This is something that we may explore in the Q&A. So I have my lessons from, for Canada from Australia. Some of this is relevant. Some of it I've seen from being in Ottawa and Canberra, how common the issues are. There are some lessons that can be learned. And one time, often I brief people in, uh, in Ottawa policy analysts and MP members of parliament and, and leaders. I just caution a bit of quiet reflection on Australia not being special. I think that there's a, a false um, analysis that can happen when you look at Australia and say, great, you've got a, a booming and a significant export sector of, of energy. We do, but all our states and territories, including the Australian Capital Territory, have access to coastlines. They have the ability to have direct routes from mine to port to international markets. So from the behaviour and interaction with politicians on both sides of the Pacific, there's nothing unique and, and collegiate about our premiers and, and prime minister. And I would be convinced if there was, if we were lined up on a road like Canada's provinces are, we would have very much similar debates. We have those tensions, but they don't occur because of a sighting of a pipeline or 
those ones we happen because of politics in terms of environmental and climate policy. So the friction points are there. It's just that because we have a uh, resource states, especially Queensland and Western Australia and the Northern Territory, which are traditionally exporters, the shift from exporting wool, wheat and other agricultural goods was quite easy to shift towards coal, gas and iron ore in the case of Western Australia. So I think the analysis of what is the magic of Australia, I think I'd, be, I'd encourage some, some consideration. The other point is the lessons are, is that domestic markets and context is important. We are not part of a North American market. Now, that means that the ability for us and our premiers and governments to do things in energy, which is probably unavailable to Canadian premiers and prime ministers, does change the dynamic. So it's very easily for people without a background in energy to neatly divide domestic markets and international markets. But for the purposes of funding large multi-billion dollar projects, those things are really important to understand and appreciate how the capital investment decisions are made. Uh, finally, and I found this when I was in Canada and doing briefings, even with industry in British Columbia, there was a mistake in Canada and Ottawa, especially because it's so far away from the energy sector, is that LNG is not like the conventional oil sector. LNG is not, tends not historically to be sold on the spot markets and often involves 20 to 25 year contracts, multi-billion dollar in value, also involves some equity stakes of the end buyer and is not a, a market transaction like selling crude or gas within your pipeline networks. That was never really understood in British Columbia and it led to some, I would say, ill thought out views on how to tax the sector before it has been launched. This is because the numbers involved in LNG projects are so large, they are multi-billion dollar concerns. You need to align a lot of players. Domestically, you need to have bipartisan support. Local politics is important, both at the provincial level and down to the local level. International support and often positioning at the, at the head of government level, the Prime Minister's office, is necessary to often get these deals over the line. So I think there was a, a tendency to view a proposed project of X billion on the coastline of BC as something inevitable. And uh, one thing I would caution, having seen Canada view resource uh, development as something that can happen on Canadian times according to Canadian priorities, the simple fact is international commodity markets don't work like that and you have windows, you have capital uh, allocation. And if, if Canada was interested in developing an LNG sector, it would really have to do some hard thinking, some compromise, and form out a bit more of a structured approach that deals with that and deals with essentially the large IOCs, international oil companies, and their um, Asian buying partners to find a formula or a way to make some more deals happen. They are not inevitable, and I think Canada has really slipped down the um, attractiveness as a destination even before the COVID killed the demand patterns into Asia. So Ian, that's pretty much a snapshot of what Australia is, how we're similar, how we're different, and, and really what we can look at. And, and those are all issues I think that deserve uh, more thorough academic research to help contribute to the debate. 
Thank you, Andrew. That was, I've been at my computer kind of taking notes and you've certainly given myself and most certainly our listeners much to kind of think about when we're looking at these two countries. As you said, a lot of these topics you can kind of really pinpoint and really expand upon in itself. And we're seeing, you know, a number of differences, a number of similarities. And so I just want to touch on some of these topics and as well as bring up some new ones. So one of the big kind of stories in 2020 outside of this this current pandemic was the Australian bushfires. I was wondering if you'd be able to kind of expand upon how the bushfires and, and the significance of those events and, and environmental crises of that kind of magnitude impact energy policy in Australia. Definitely, and I think that's that was one of the big things which emerged out of the Chris, our Christmas, our summer is January, February. And for the listeners, just a little bit of context, the, the Australian bushfire season is a regular occurrence. I'm a, a volunteer bushfire fighter and often on Christmas day, I end up fighting a fire. So it's not a new phenomenon, but particularly for various reasons, notably lack of uh, preventative burning, expansion of urban footprint. There was a particular matrix which caused a significant bushfire event and caused it particularly close and impacted on the major population centres. So what you have is a lot of visuals that you would typically have have not seen. I'm sure you've seen the Sydney Harbour or Sydney Opera House cloaked in smoke, the the National Parliament barely visible, people wearing masks, not because of a virus, but because of the smoke. So it certainly started to, and it was linked quite quickly to the issue of climate change. Is this a cause because of a more extreme climate as some of the people uh, who were critical of it and, and sought a more action. So we tended to see, as it happened, a doubling down of the positions, whether you were in the environmental camp who wanted to take quite significant action and those who were not and wanted to continue exporting and, and, and business as usual. They clashed over that time. It was a January period where typically there's an informal truce between our political parties, so at least they can have a summer off. It's kind of like July in cabin season in Canada. From Christmas Day on the 25th up to the 26th of January is a truce. Prime Minister Scott Morrison was in Hawaii with his family. Modern crises such as the bushfires, because of the visuals and because of the international attention, required immediate response. Morrison fumbled in his approach to be seen as an active manager, even though it's not a federal matter, and was failed in his sympathy for those who were impacted. And a number of communities were quite literally, you know, burnt off the map. So what that fed into is it put him on the back foot and, and he was coming off a high level of popularity, but things were starting to, to get a bit shaky towards Christmas. As that manifested, he was facing a barrage of criticism, poll numbers were going down, and just for context, he had removed a sitting, he had been the result of, a, of an internal coup within the Conservative Party. So Australian Prime Ministers are not secure in their roles. There was no leadership grumbling, but he was seen to not perform. That meant that there was a, a greater push by environmentalists and those advocating for quite severe responses to do something. Do something could mean everything from an emissions trading scheme to, to a much more radical depopulation. That was gathering steam and 
it was only partially being wound back on a political perspective before the coronavirus hit. So when the coronavirus hit, the bushfire topic almost went from front page to a bare footnote within the space of a week. Um, the rebuilding efforts, the challenges, the commission, that quiet work continues, but it really dropped off the agenda. And it's, it's arguably going to be quite an afterthought at the moment because even though our new cycle is as of uh, late April 2020, is starting to move towards the cost and economic damage of it. It hasn't really been, the bushfires haven't been brought up. So it really shows, and this is another research stream, is that a crisis can occur, but what happens around the crisis and when the crisis happens is critical. Because I think the, um, the bushfires seem now like a, a lifetime away, despite it being only three, four months before every front page of international papers had uh, pushed us at an issue. Uh, and the other flip side of that is the high popularity of incumbents and relatively positive performance seen by Scott Morrison and a few missteps by the Labor opposition has forced the issue back onto the centre-left Australian Labor Party where there is more unity within the Conservative Liberals. So I, I can't see this being a, a reason there's a huge shift in environmental policy in Australia or climate policy. I would have said something very different three months ago but things have changed and, um, and at the end of the day, I think the, the, we have never had a climate awareness or priority at the time of potentially double digit unemployment. So the, and the other part, and I think we're veering onto a few other things, is the other part is that energy prices in Australia are very high and it would be uh, the cost of air conditioning is in, in January here is like the cost of heating a house in Canada in January. I'm, I'm really glad that you bring that up just because you had mentioned in your talk and you just mentioned now the impact of COVID-19 and the pandemic. Uh, we, of course, discussing this topic from our respective homes. But I was wondering if you could be able to kind of expand upon that point a little bit more about the current context of the pandemic and how it might, how it does impact energy policy issues. Maybe expand on that point about the affordability being more critical. Yes, and that, I think that's something that's um, been overlooked and it's been overlooked by those in, on both sides of the cancer rigidly set in, the, in their views. I think there is no denying there has been a broad shift of greater environmental concern across all parts of the population. The question is, is how sticky is that and how much will that shift the policy settings of government or their ability to move policy. So the Morrison government has, has clearly made before COVID and even under criticism, they pointed they would not sacrifice jobs in the economy for international targets or international ambitions beyond what was necessary. COVID I think is going to accelerate that as, as we are seeing in Australia quite a significant correction our quarter, our, our sort of fourth quarter financial year is going to bring in some horror figures. And it's really going to mean that the any flow through of cost onto the consumer for any of these policies will be fiercely dealt with. And, and remember, just for political context, Tony Abbott, the Conservative, came, came to power, won the election from the centre-left Labor government on an anti-carbon tax platform, which was electorally very successful, even if his governing was not. So I think COVID will accelerate that trend and people are really making some difficult 
choices and, and I've had discussions with some utilities in terms of hardships in terms of rate freezes or simple or, or one-off lump sum rebates or payments which is a more arcane technical issue. The, the other thing Ian I think that isn't understood is that the oil price war with Saudi and Russia essentially turning things the tap up when demand was cratering that has flown through as well. We import a lot of fuel oil to Australia, but it also impacts the export revenue of our prices because LNG is typically linked to a formula associated with the oil price. So what we're seeing is that the long-term contracts are still in place, but all our proposed projects, because of the oil price war, but magnified because of COVID, have been pushed back, deferred, or soon to be abandoned. So I think this is going to have a decade-long impact on energy policy. It will reset it to a significant degree. And I think that while there'll be sympathy for some kind of climate settings or goals or policies, I just cannot see a context where with unemployment, say, 15% or further with Great Depression levels, that will have a big uptake by any major political party. It is simply such the cost of energy has become such a big component of household budgets, especially for poorer and lower middle class families, it's a non-starter. And I think the political parties are yet to adjust properly to that. And it will probably induce more fissures on the centre-left Australian Labor Party, which is having an internal debate akin to a, um, a Bernie Sanders extreme left and a Joe Biden more moderate middle of the road. So I think that's going to fracture the left probably quite a lot. And that will have an impact on governments. I like how you mentioned the current oil war between Russia and Saudi Arabia. And one of the big elements to this discussion has been Australia as an exporter, as a contributor to those international markets. I was wondering if you'd be able to speak a little bit more to that about the role of international energy markets, particularly in East Asia, and how those played an effect into kind of the energy policies of Australia? Look, I think that's a, that's a great question. It's something critical, and I think it's something Canada will become increasingly aware of as it will have an impact on, on Canada's energy policy and ambitions. So... LNG, because it has been a, uh, it's a cleaner burning fuel than, uh, or gas is a cleaner burning fuel than, than coal, it has been preferred by the countries which are developed and also at the upper end of the middle, middle income developing category. So it's no accident that the LNG first went to Japan, the Republic of China, Singapore, South Korea. And then as China developed, and it was actually West Australian gas, which was first there, it went to China. So there's a preference for, for LNG for essentially for not, not climate change as debates as we know in the West, but more just immediate local environmental impacts of not burning coal. But there's also a significant amount of coal generation still across the whole Indo-Pacific, especially in developing Asia. So it would be a mistake to say China is going to gas. It's actually still quite a big coal producer, not just for electricity, but also as a substitute for imported oil, which is a security concern. So I think the picture of a coal or gas is a false one, which is interesting from the perspective of, of say, Ottawa or potentially Paris, but just doesn't meet the reality of Asia, which is often still connecting to the grid. Energy is patchy and the demand for energy 
is growing, and especially in Southeast Asia, where you see these trends pull out. So what we've seen is an acceleration of coal deployment in developing Asia, particularly Indonesia, which is a case, is, is a very good example. At the same time, LNG prices and gas have been pushed down. That means that there has been a, it makes it more attractive to switch into. So the question is, is what, what happens to coal? Well, coal is very cheap at the moment and coal is seen to be a declining industry. But if you look at the trend of Japan, China, they never exited the coal business. They simply shift to exporting coal, uh, manufacture of coal plants and financing of coal plants. And they've done that to Southeast Asia. I think coal will still have a significant long life, especially as you look to countries like Bangladesh, Pakistan, India, and eventually Africa as they start to industrialise. And for them, despite concerns in, in other national capitals, a cheap, consistent, reliable energy source which can be imported from a guaranteed partner will be attractive. So it's not necessarily a growth sector, seaborne coal, but, but it still has a long, a long life. And this is where some of the research is important. I'm currently researching whale oil in Western Australia which was part of our, an early sector in the 1840s. It wasn't until 1978 that the last whale uh, hunting uh, finished in, in Western Australia. So the, the lesson that, that we see, and I think, is that coal is quite cheap. It will be continued for some time and there'll be substitution in some of the lower and lower middle income countries. Gas is very cheap and it'll accelerate the switching and it will be a buyer's market for LNG for some time. And it will be not until the next, uh, the, the mid-2020s, that we'll start to see an acceleration of LNG investment. For Canada, Australia, I think it's a positive. I think there's going to be more opportunities in the sector. But interestingly, for the first time, it may push Canada, the US and Australia to compete in international markets at the same time with the same countries. And even though we're all part of the five eyes and the uh, sort of the anglo alliance i think it may cause a number of frictions and we will be all out to uh win the um the contracts for our respective countries and and the jobs that it creates so it, it's an interesting time in energy markets and that's why i think even though canada is very much linked to us pricing given the pricing hubs and the, the shale revolution and its inter physical integration asia matters a lot and will matter a lot to canada going ahead so I want to just kind of switch directions a little bit and, and bring it back to British Columbia. Now, you kind of mentioned a little bit within your discussion about its LNG projects. And the quote that I have from you is, LNG projects are, are not inevitable. And that, and that Canada needs to have a little bit of that more international perspective in mind. I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about that, about kind of the perspectives for uh, new projects and where BC is in that larger global LNG sector. Yeah, and that's that's exactly where my research is, and, and it's actually inspired by an environmental history book called Unbuilt Environments, which looks at how some projects in British Columbia essentially failed and the reasons for failure, and that has got me thinking about why do LNG projects fail? It's really, from a VC perspective, I, I think, and an academic perspective, I think it's good to study not just why some projects get up because they are very few amongst the many, but the reasons for failure. And there's been no systematic approach from a rigorous academic perspective 
There certainly is within energy consultancies, but there's nowhere that brings together these strands and neutrally looks at, in a neutral manner, analyzes the reasons for failure. Because I count failure as, as you can have, the definition I use is, is someone prepared to put money into it? That is generally the sign of success. So for British Columbia, I think there's a lot to be seen. And this does not necessarily involve radical change to the values or the positions of the British Columbia or, or Canada, but it just comes into understanding what LNG, how decisions are made and what is the mix that is needed at a particular time to make it work. Uh, so, so I think for BC, there, can be, there will be a number of interesting insights from this research and some may be very mundane in terms of how the Premier's office works in, with uh, regulators and some of the domestic matters and simply local government interaction with the IOC. So it's an area which I think is um, underexplored. There's a lot of debate on it. There's a lot of debate about its future, but no one actually looks about how, what makes it tick. And I think it's quite an exciting space and it, and it would hopefully, uh, one of my hopes is whether BC or Canada develops an LNG sector to the size of Australia is really up to Canada. But it's my hope that I can actually come up with some of the factors that contribute it. So at least there can be an informed policy discussion based on some solid academic research. And then we can hopefully, as is the positive energy focus, is in move forward and make some rational, unbiased, data-driven uh, decisions. I'm really glad that you mentioned the nod to positive energy and kind of the research, because I was going to ask a little bit about your current involvement with the initiative. Andrew, I'm all out of questions on my end, but is there any other comments that you want to mention about this topic, about kind of the Australian experience and how it might relate to Canada, or maybe how energy decision makers, uh, what they might take away from this? Look, I'm quite glowing about the uh, positive energy process because I've been involved in a number of briefings to energy ministers in a number of countries and I have found it so frustrating in terms of trying to bring together the disparate threads of public opinion, academic uh, research, industry views and um, I, I think that what I see is that there is space for this and many other efforts to, to do this. And it doesn't strictly have to be from a so-called pro-industry or a sort of pro-environment. But I think that, that we need to dispassionately look at these issues and really bring out some more quality research and have conversations like this, which are in depth, which look at all of the factors and which hopefully give Canadians and Canadian policymakers a window on a different perspective. And I say that with a lot of respect, having been a PR of Canada for some time, just take getting out of North America and that prism is often very useful. And, and it may be a, a very good thing for Canada going ahead as it looks further to, more to Asia and less towards its traditional European partners and, and continues on that process of, of attempts to diversify its economy. So I think there's, there's a lot to be found and the research is just at the beginning and I'm doing this Zoom because I was meant to be giving a lecture in Ottawa as the snow was melting and unfortunately I am here and but I look forward to uh, contributing to the research and physically being in your national capital sometime soon. That'd be lovely to, to see you here. 
in Canada, Andrew. And yeah, and I've got to say, this research sounds fascinating. It sounds very important. And so thank you for your time to talk to us about this topic. And yeah, we wish you all the best with your uh, continuing research at the, the University of Western Australia, and especially with positive energy as well. Thanks, Ian, and, and thanks for, for hosting the podcast. You've been listening to the Positive Energy Podcast. For more information on the initiative, please visit the Positive Energy website. Today's episode was produced by myself, Ian T.D. Thompson.